We are going to uh, jump into the book of Acts. We've been in here over the last few weeks. If you guys have a Bible, we'll be at the tail end of Acts chapter 4 and then the start of Acts chapter 5. So go ahead and open up. If you don't have a Bible with you, one of our ushers would love to get you a Bible. Just simply raise your hand and they'll pass one out. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, this is our gift to you. Um, For all of us, this is always a really great uh, reminder and opportunity um, to jump in, start today with the True Story Project. If you're not familiar with what that is, back in September, our church started a project where, as a whole church, we committed to reading the whole Bible over the course of a whole year. And so um, some of the Bibles actually have the bookmarks uh, with information about True Story Project. Um, If you're behind, if you haven't started, if this is the first time you've heard about it, start today. That's our mantra, start today. Day. Start today. Jump right in and, and read the true story of God's world with us. So, before we dive in today, um, there's some heaviness in this passage that we're going to look at. If you guys have been around church for a while, you may be familiar, that's right, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, so, let's pray together before we dive in, okay? Oh, God, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the encouragement that comes with gathering um, with your people. Uh, Thank you for song. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, which is present, which is working um, in each of us, God, and which is drawing us closer to you. We pray that you would speak through me with clarity and creativity today, that you would um, help me to communicate what you would have for your people in this specific time here in Tempe. God, we thank you that you have called us together. We thank you that you know us by name. We thank you that you love us and that you save us. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So um, if you guys have heard me preach before, you know, I don't know how to say this. My wife and I binge watch TV. And that may not be the holiest thing for like a church guy to be confessing to the congregation, but um, typically what happens is we're both very busy, we're involved in a lot of things, and at the end of the day, once the kids go to sleep, my words have like long been spent for the day. I have no more words. Um, My wife still has like 7,000 words, so after those... After those are spent, then we're both exhausted and, and we watch TV and some of the shows are really like, you know, like intelligent, holy, uplifting shows. Um, and then others are like Walking Dead, Guilty Pleasure, whatever. Uh, but one of the shows that has really captivated us is a show called This Is Us. And if you guys were around for, yeah, people are like, yes, this is going to be a good sermon. Um, <laughs> If you were around for Christmas Eve, Ricardo talked about the show This Is Us. And so I blame him. It's Ricardo's fault. But um, he had told us about the show. And with about, within about, um, if I'm honest with you guys, about 48 hours, we had watched every single episode of This Is Us. And so now the second half of the first season's out and we're watching the show. And we love this show. There's something about the writing, the, the story that just draws you in. You can't help but be sucked in by this, this dad who, who just loves the mom so well. And, and I'm watching this and I'm like, at the same time feeling like I'm the worst husband ever and like I wanna be a better husband, right? And he loves his kids and he's like vulnerable with them and he accepts them and I'm like, I need to be a better dad. And, and there's something, I'm not, I can't exactly place my finger on it. I think there may be like 
witchcraft or sorcery involved, but This Is Us has like this magic spell that whenever you watch it, like you're, you just cry. <laughs> I can't help it. And, um, you know, I'm okay. Like I'm confident in my manhood. I got tattoos. I'm tough, you know. But seriously, every time I watch this show, I'm like crying, and, and it's just, it's really, really good. It's really, really good. So, This Is Us is this picture of a family that as it points out where I'm lacking as a leader of my family, it draws me in. It makes me want to do better and like, Kinda, I wish I could be in that family, right? We do this thing called DNA, and it's a really good entrance into our church. Uh, you talk about who we are and what we do. Um, we just started a new session this morning, actually, during the nine. Um, so, little plug here, if you are looking to get into a redemption community, that's the best way to do it. Join us 9 a.m. in the 800 building next Sunday. But each week, we talk about something different, and on week three, we talk about community. And the icebreaker question that we use is, if you had to be adopted by a TV show family, which family would you choose and why? And for the last cycle of DNA, about half of the group said, this is us. Young and old, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, people love this show. There's something enticing about this family, something that sucks you in, something that's attractive. You want to be involved with something like this. And this is what we see in the first part of this passage. Will you guys read with me in, in Acts chapter 4? We're going to start in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, and we know at this point in the story that the church has grown to a couple thousand, right? We're in the thousands. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." So we learn a couple things here. One, we know that the church has grown um, considerably in size, right? We're, we're into the thousands here. 3,000 were added when Peter preaches at Pentecost, and it's grown from there. So there's a lot of people involved in this. And we also see that they're of, of one heart and of one soul. There's unity in the midst of this. We also learn that there's diversity in the midst of this group of people, right? Some were landowners, some had, were, were very well resourced, and others were in need, and yet there was unity. And as I was reading through this and praying through this passage, something struck me, right? Because I read the book of Acts and I see Pentecost, and there's like fire flames on them, and they're speaking in tongues, and I'm like, that's miraculous, that's amazing, right? And then Peter's talking, and, and they're walking by, and they heal the man that was crippled, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's a miracle. That is amazing. We see these great, big, exciting signs and wonders, and we think, wow, wouldn't it be great to live in the time of the early church and see these miracles happening left and right, these strange things that we don't really know what to do with, like, we go to the doctor, we don't just go to Ricardo and have him pray for us, right? 
And so we're trying to figure out, like, what's going on? These signs and wonders, these miracles, they're, they're really interesting. And then we read a passage like this, and it's like, oh, that, that's nice. That's nice. And I wonder if we sought to embody a miracle like this as much as some of the other more flashier things, what kind of witness would the church have today? If in the midst, midst of our context, if we were a large group of people who were diverse, age-wise, socioeconomic status, how we voted, what we care about, what shows we watch, yet we could still get along in unity, I wonder what type of testimony that would give to the world that, that is watching I wonder how we would engage our community. I, I would suggest, church, that this, is, this would be nothing short of a miracle. And we're beginning to see this. We're beginning to see this as the early church takes seriously the words of Jesus, this great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. They're going throughout Jerusalem making disciples bearing testimony to this resurrected Christ. And when this resurrected Jesus enters into someone's life, things change. There's, there's a shift. Things are different. And it starts to make waves. It starts to affect those around them, their community, their city, the entire culture. And so we have a snapshot of this here. And it's, and it's seen in this great unity, right? There's unity among believers, not only in their relationships, but in their behaviors, with their finances, and we don't see here, like, some people would say this is an early form of socialism or communism. That's not what's going on here. This is not mandated by government or state. This isn't even really mandated by church leadership. It says, as, as anyone had need, as any need arose, fellow believers responded. The implications here is that they knew one another. They knew when there was a need. There was vulnerability, right? People were vulnerable with one another to share their needs, not to always put on, you know, the pretty face when you go to church and everything's okay after you were just like screaming at your kids in the car in the parking lot. I've never done that, ever. <clears throat> ever. So we see something happening and, and we know because of our experience as human beings, this is not normal. We don't typically see this. We, we struggle to live with this. I struggle to live with this generosity with my family or my close friends, let alone people that I don't know well, but this is what is being exemplified in the early church. It says that there's great power. There's great authority that's coming along with the apostles' teaching in the midst of this context. See, these people, we, we've talked about this, these people are, are a glimpse of the coming kingdom. They're a foretaste of what, what it will look like when God restores all things on heaven and earth back to the way things should be. We live in the midst of the way things ought not to be. We feel it, right? Things should not be this way. We feel the tension, and these people are living in a, in a distinct countercultural way. They're giving that little glimpse, that tidbit, like that Costco sample. When you try that thing that's really, really good, and then you buy 15 pounds of it, because it's so delicious. That's what they're doing. They're living these distinct lives so as, as 
people who don't yet know Jesus see them and encounter them. They see what's going on and there's something appealing. They look like this is us. And then the people around them start binge watching. They start entering in because there's something about this story. There's something about this reality that people could really be united. That people could really like love one another. Not in a superficial kumbaya, like post something on Facebook sense, but like deep in their bones. Like that they would be willing, as Barnabas does, and we'll see this, to sell their possessions and distribute them to anyone who has need. Let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, like one of the best nicknames ever, who's a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He understands that there's need in his community, and he responds. He responds. He sees the need. He's motivated by the love of God, these affections that through the Spirit, Christ is stirring within him, and he responds. And it's really, really easy to read this story and to think, yeah, go. But when it comes down to us, we know generosity is costly. It costs something for us to live this way. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I don't always get really excited about sacrificial generosity. It's uncomfortable. And so church, I would suggest it's nothing short of a miracle that through the Spirit, God is stirring the affections of his people. That there is this bubbling up of love and generosity and sacrificial commitment to one another. That they would live in this way. This was a common thing. It wasn't just Barnabas. This was common in the church. Kind of makes me reconsider how we pray for one another. That if we lived with this intense generosity, how differently would our communities look? How would we be seen in our work environments? What would our neighbors say? Like, you always have people over and you're sharing stuff and cooking meals. What is going on there? I would imagine that that would raise questions. Why do you do that? I imagine that would give us some opportunity to live out what Peter um, tells the early church in, in the book of 1 Peter to um, always be, be prepared to give an answer when people ask you about the hope that you have. Right? He doesn't really have this picture in mind of like, the guy on the corner with the sign. That's not really the picture of evangelism that Peter has in mind. It's more of such a distinct life in the midst of the world that people can't help but ask questions of what is going on? Not like, why are you such a weirdo? But like, what is going on? This is an attractive community. This is a welcoming community. This is a sacrificial community. And this is a loving community. But as we move forward, we see that it's not all like, puppies and rainbows falling from heaven, right? We have this story of Ananias and Sapphira, which starts in chapter 5, and it says this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. 
And with his wife's knowledge, she kept, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So the moral of the story is if you don't tithe today, you could die. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding, but maybe. (laughs) So we see this example here, right? We We have Barnabas, son of encouragement, who sells his possessions and gives to those in need. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira, and and they sell their land. And Peter makes some things clear for us so that we get a better picture of what's going on in this story. First, he says, Ananias, when you owned this land, it was yours to do with whatever you wanted. No one was forcing you to sell your land. And once you sold it, you could still do whatever you wanted with it. No one was forcing them to give the money. They could have been transparent and given a portion of the money. They could have kept the money. They could have given all of the money. But they chose to misrepresent themselves as though they were giving all of the money that they received knowing that that was not accurate. And then Ananias dies. And I read the story and I'm like, get him. And then I start to reflect a little bit. And then I get really nervous because, like, not only am I reading this story, but now I'm preaching this story. And if my wife were here at this service, she could tell you for hours all of the ways that I do this same thing. And if we're honest with ourselves, I would assume all of us do. You see, this really weird thing happened a year ago. I I stopped having a normal job, and I started working here full-time. And as soon as that happened, I I don't know, like everyone that I knew kind of shifted how they viewed me, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, we're going to eat a meal. Will should pray. (laughs) Oh, anything happened? Will, will you pray for us? And I'm like, I could have prayed two months ago, (laughs) and you guys can still pray, but there's this assumption, right? And, And people will come with like, all of these super intense questions, like, well, you're a pastor now. What, when Jesus died on the cross, where's the actual cross? And I'm like, I have no idea where the actual cross is. Turns out I don't know every single thing that's in here or the implications of it. Like, all that to say, I'm a guy. Just a dude who's trying to figure it out. And getting to know the guys and the gals on staff, we're all in this boat. We have sin. Real sin. And there's an incredible weight that comes with coming here week after week and preaching and teaching and sharing about this standard that God calls us to that none of us live up to in our real lives. That's the reality. That's the reality we all find ourselves in. And I love Ricardo talks about discipleship is one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. And the bread is in God's grace. 
We don't come here as experts. We don't come here as sinless. One of the pastors at another redemption congregation was, was joking about preaching the sermon and, and, and the, the service would go kind of regular, just sing the songs, awkwardly shake the hands, do the announcements, and then just have no one get on stage and make it awkward, like for a couple minutes. No one on stage and everyone would look around and then talk about none of us is worthy to preach this passage. Because the reality is that God allowed Ananias and Sapphira to die that day. But in truth, we're no different. We're no different. I, I wonder what Peter thought. Peter, who Jesus says, you know, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then Peter totally, like, denies Jesus, rebukes him for saying he's going to die. Jesus calls him Satan, right? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, who knows what it feels like to fail. Peter, who knows what it feels like to deny Christ. I wonder what he was feeling in the midst of this. This exchange was going on. It... it becomes a little more clear when, when Peter speaks with um, Sapphira in verse 7. says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. First time I read it, I thought of like, he's almost laying a trap for her, right? Like he's going to trick her, like, ah, gotcha. I wonder if that wasn't his tone, though. I wonder if it was the tone, if it was almost a plead. Like, here's another chance. I do this with my kids, right? The big one punches the little one in the face. What did you do? Well, my brother made, no, 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 no. What happened? Well, what had happened was I was going to do this, but that, no, no, no. Just tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. When Jesus meets with Peter after Peter's denial, he gives him this opportunity. Do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? He asks him three times. Peter denies Jesus three times, then Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? There's opportunity for repentance. There's opportunity for grace here. And so Peter asks Sapphira, hey, is this the amount? She says, yes, it's the amount. Uh, but Peter said to her in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, as they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So we often talk about here um, with the, the need for volunteers, especially in children's ministry. We always need more more volunteers in children's ministry, and it's hard to get enough volunteers. I imagine it would be more difficult to get volunteers to, like, carry out the dead bodies of people who had lied to the Spirit and buried them. That would probably be a tough call to fill. But this is what we see in this story. In the midst of the people, this happens. These two people die. And I get really uncomfortable with this. And I try to figure out as I'm communicating with you guys, like, gosh, how am I going to spin it to make God look really good? Because this is kind of a crazy story. And I start feeling like I need to be like God's, like, you know, media hype man or something. Um, and I think the reason I feel like that, and I, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this, but one is um, I don't think my sin is that bad. 
I don't take my own sin that seriously. And, and I try to, and I'm praying to, and, and thankfully God is faithful and he's working on me. But I think we're just really comfortable with sin. We like to sing about that, you know, Jesus died for our sins and, and Jesus paid it all. But when we think about the reality of our own hearts, the ugliness of our own hearts, we're pretty comfortable with sin. And when we think about God's wrath and God's judgment, well, we skip those pages. We read the happy stuff about the love and the grace and the forgiveness because that's much more comfortable. But I think the more aware we are of our own sin, the more terrified we are of God's wrath, the sweeter his grace is in our lives. And so I think as we step into this story, there's a reason it's here. And now people have tried to extrapolate all types of different things and theories and suggestions. And some people say Ananias and Sapphira were Christians and other would say, no, they're not Christians and this is what it means and how come it doesn't happen now and all of these other things. Let's talk about what we know. We know that sin is evil. It's destructive and the wages of sin is death. We know that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin so seriously that he will kill someone over it. It is not what he intends for his creation. And as, as the new kingdom enters in on earth as it is in heaven, God is, is striving to keep sin out of that kingdom. When heaven and earth are renewed, there will be no sin in that kingdom. And we see in this story that God will kill to keep sin out of his kingdom. And guys, the really, really good news is that God already did kill because he takes sin so seriously to keep it out of our lives. He killed his son. He sent his son to die on our behalf because the wages of sin is death, because God takes sin seriously, and because he loves us more than anything we could imagine. And so in the midst of this story, we have this picture of God dealing with sin decisively, swiftly, harshly. But this is also what happened to his own son on our behalf. This passage ends with this really interesting sentence. It says, in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Everyone who heard of these things had this great sense of fear. Who is this God? This God who is so powerful, who deals so decisively with sin. And, and as I'm reading this verse and I'm thinking of it, I'm realizing like great fear is coming upon me. It wasn't just those who heard these things back in the days of the early church. As we hear these things, this sense of great fear comes upon us and not fear of like an angry father, but reverence, respect, knowing our place, living in the world that a sovereign God has created. The best example of this I've seen is um, years ago, my wife and I were able to, to partner with a ministry in Guatemala 
And, and what we did is we worked <clears throat> inside some of the gang prisons with the 18th Street Gang and MS-13. And in the 18th Street Gang, they have a prison right in the middle of Guatemala City. And so we go in and we're going to tell them about Jesus and, and hang out with the guys. And as we're approaching the prison on the, on the street, on one side is the prison in the big entrance. And directly across the street from the entrance to the prison is like this gigantic like army vehicle with like three machine guns pointed right at the entrance. So if there is a prison break and people run out, they have like literal like troops with machine guns and sandbags. And part of me is like my little kid G.I. Joe self is like, this is awesome. And then part of me is like, this is really scary. Like this is intense. And so, so we walk into the prison and, you know, we, they search us and the guards bring us over to, to the floor where, where all the 18th Street gang members are. And so the guards, <clears throat> they open the first door and then there's a little hallway and then they close the door and the inmates open the inside door. And um, that's a little intimidating. Um, the guards don't go on the floor for safety reasons. And... I start like, you know, the voice, right? The vo like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you going in here? Um, and so my wife and I, she, was, she wasn't my wife at the time. Like, we're going in and I'm thinking, okay, she's going to die. Like, I'm going to die. This is going to be horrible. This is crazy. But, but we go and, and just had a, a really great experience, you know, over the course of a few days. And we did a couple trips. But one of the things that's really interesting, so um, if you can visualize the the that floor of the prison is set up with kind of a hallway and then seven large cells or eight large cells on either side, okay? About 40 guys can fit in each cell. If you've seen the like National Geographic did a documentary, like those types of things, like the Central American gangsters, like have that picture in your mind, right? With like the face tattoos, right? Like this is nothing, right? Like the face tattoos, neck tattoos, these are the guys. But this ministry has been in there for a while now and they've shared the gospel and they've served them well, and they've loved them. And some of these gang members have responded. And so now the gang has to figure out what to do because they love the ministry. These guys are becoming Christians and not wanting to do what the gang is telling them to do anymore. So how do they navigate these waters? What they decided is on the back left prison cell, they call it La Iglesia, the church. So if you become a Christian, you get to move. You go live in La Iglesia, and you hang out with the Christians, and you don't have to do the things that the gang expects everyone else to do. But there's another dynamic at play. Because what they found is some guys would get scared. They wouldn't want to do what the gang was asking them to do. So they would say, oh, yeah, we're Christians now. And they would go live in La Iglesia. And there were severe physical consequences if they found out that these people weren't actually Christians. So as these men are considering whether or not they will, they will accept Jesus, whether or not they will trust God with their lives, one of the factors that goes into their minds is they will be watched 24-7, day and night. And if they aren't acting like Christians, their gang brothers will make sure that consequences are felt. There's a very real threat here. It's a life or death situation. This is what I've come to find out. There aren't a lot of guys that make that commitment. But the ones that do understand what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. 
that this call into relationship with Jesus is not simply I'm going to choose to believe a certain set of things, but my life will be radically changed. As one author describes it, it's not that we're simply saved by grace, but yet grace which produces works, grace which produces fruit, that the gospel demands a changed lifestyle. The gospel demands that as we enter into this community of God's people, we start to look like God's people. We are this display people, this unique countercultural presence in the midst of the world, in the midst of the hurt and the brokenness and the chaos and the disunity. We are that unified voice. We are those people of love, of generosity, of sacrifice, those who would willingly give of ourselves for the sake of another because we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who left the comforts of heaven to walk this earth, right? The word put on flesh and dwelt among us. God moved into the neighborhood, not from a distance, but up close and personal, and that has implications on our lives. When we say we love Jesus and that we're filled with the spirit, then things change. God's law is written on our hearts. It shouldn't be a mystery whether we believe or not. There should be this radical shift. And while the grace is free, God's invitation is open to everyone, there should be a sense of reverence that comes with this because sin is costly. There are consequences, serious life or death consequences. But the good news, this gospel that we proclaim week in and week out in all of our RC gatherings, when our mission collectives meet as we um, mentor your children, all of these things, this gospel says that these weighty consequences of sin, you don't have to bear them. God's son will bear those for you. Jesus came to live this life for the sake of others that we could never live. He came to to show us, to lay the foundation for the spirit to come so that we could be this foretaste of the coming kingdom. So that as we go out into our communities, as we go out into our vocations, our neighborhoods, our friends and families, they would ask, what is going on? They would see in us something that draws them into our community, not something like weird, but something enticing. Something that, like This Is Us, once you catch a couple episodes, you can't help but binge watch because you're intrigued. You can't help but be sucked into the story of this loving God who created everything good. This God who continues to pursue us even as sin ushered in by human choice wrecks everything he made. This God who sets forth this long plan of redemption, which goes from a nation, a people shaped by a law that focuses their love and attention on the other, to his son Jesus, who dies for us, who raises from the dead and sends us his spirit so that we can continue to participate in this grand narrative. It's God who takes sin so seriously that he would send his son to die so that we may have life. This is the good news. This is the story that gripped and shaped the early church. And this is the story that moves us forward today. Will you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for the goodness, the faithfulness that you've displayed 
for generation to generation to generation. God, you give us such a clear example in, in this text of, of Ananias and Sapphira who chose sin, and it literally led to death. And, and you give us this example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement who chose love, and it led to life. God, we thank you for the work that you did in Barnabas' life as he and Paul were missionaries to the Gentiles. We thank you that we are connected spiritually to that. That because those men in their faithfulness stepped out empowered by your spirit to share your good news with, with Gentiles, God, we are included. We thank you that you love us, that you include us into your story. And God, we ask that your spirit would continue to mold your people that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son, that you would use us despite our sins, despite our flaws, despite the many ways that we choose everything other than you, God, that through your grace and your forgiveness, you continue to use us to share this story. God, we thank you for the ways that your love draws us close to you and close to one another. We thank you for the ways that you are using your people here to impact our communities. Would you bless us with more of that? Would you continue to pour out your grace upon us so that with power we may bear witness to the good news, the reality that you came, you died, and you raised from the dead so that we might be saved. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.